to help us this morning, we also want to look at Romans 5, just as a little supplement. Romans 5, uh, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So make our way back into Hebrews 6, and we had been going through Hebrews. We took a break, and as I was praying this week and looking through the Scripture, I realized that to finish up chapter 6, where we had left off, seemed very helpful to what we've been talking about the last four or five weeks. Um, I'm not sure if... We're going to continue in Hebrews this or next, the following week, uh, but we will be eventually finishing this book uh, in the near future. So I didn't really know how to start this sermon. Uh, basically, I was like, "Do I review where we were in Hebrews? Uh, is there some good story or something I can connect and help us move into getting your attention and?" getting us where we need to be. Uh, I kind of wasn't, wasn't having any luck with any of that. So, as I was thinking through it and asking the Lord to just help me figure out how to start this sermon, um, He reminded me that this is kind of a tag to the passage that we looked at last week. <coughs> Forgive me. And that was that God has made promises. We finished, we looked at 2 Peter, and we saw that God has given us His very great promises. And I just started to touch on that a little bit last week. But this this section in Hebrews, it gives us, puts a little bit more meat on the bones for us. And so, that's my introduction <laughs> it, we're going to understand a little bit more about the promise of God and what it ought to do for us and how it ought to shape our lives so with that <coughs> I want to read verse 11 and 12 
in chapter 6. And I want you to see how the promise comes here in these two verses. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God has granted to us His very precious and great promises. The promises of God are the very glue that holds everything together for us. It is what unites everything for us. The promises of God are the reasons for our hope. And when I say hope, for you note takers, I want us just to simply define it as a sure expectation or a confident outcome. When you're watching a football game, you hope your team wins, but you have no confidence, especially if you're a Razorback fan. You're not sure, but the hope we speak of in Scripture is expected. The outcome is confident. Now, you might wake up tomorrow in a different situation. We all wake up tomorrow in different situations. Some of you will get up tomorrow and you will be staring down the barrel of another week of struggles. And because of the promises of God, because of the hope we have in God, we can look right back at that week week of struggles and give thanks to God for an eternal hope that goes way past One week of struggles. Some of you have or may have get bad news from a doctor. Well, I want you to grab on to the promises of God and be strengthened by the hope that you have. And remember a promise that says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know, the future might have for us that some of us could lose our jobs, our incomes. If we're unwilling to go along and get along with the world, if we're unwilling to say that a man can be a woman, You could lose everything. You could find yourself in persecution if you stand with the Word of God. But you can remember that as all the ones around you forsake you for your standing firm in the truth, that God promises that He will never leave you nor forsake you. The promises of God, the hope of God only come to you and are helpful to you in one way. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Why? 
Why is our only hope come to us through Christ? Well, number one, it's because He has secured your hope by His very blood. He has sealed up the promises of God for you on Calvary. Not only that, He wrote your name on the envelope and handed it to the Father after His resurrection and ascension. Individually. In Him, in Christ alone, you are the recipients of all of God's promises. All of God's blessings. You are all in Christ, heirs with Christ. Awaiting an inheritance. Because you are in Him and He is in you. That's why we read in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, regardless of your situation. Regardless. And so back into Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews has a plea. He has a, a heart yearning desire that his hearer of this letter, of this sermon, has what he calls a hope of full assurance. And when he says a full assurance of hope is actually how he says it, it's a redundant statement. He says, hearer, Listen to me, Christian, listen to me. I want you to be confidently confident about the outcome of your life. Confidently confident about the expectation that you have in Jesus Christ. But he gives, if you look, it's in verse 11, he says this. We desire to each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And then in verse 12, he gives a so that. And so when you see a so that in Scripture, you take the truth that was in the, the verse or sentence before, and then you put a because. The reason why. What is the reason he wants you to have a, a confidently confident expectation of the outcome of your life in Christ? So that, or because, you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now, what this outlines for us is, is he gives his hearer, and I'm giving to you, two possible paths in your life as someone who calls themselves a Christian. So, you believer, professing Christ has two paths to which you could live your life. Number one, and this was addressed throughout chapter 6, and is a theme in Hebrews. But he calls it sluggishness, the first path. He wants you to have a full assurance of hope until the end so that you might not be sluggish. Well, what's the big deal with sluggishness? Um... The word sluggishness doesn't mean you're like slow in what you're doing. We discussed this 
quite a while ago when he talks of this word sluggishness, if we were to say it in our Kansan language, we'd say you're hard of hearing. And if you're hard of hearing, you don't know what's going on. If you're hard of hearing, you can't obey the command that's been given you. If you're hard of hearing, you don't know the promises that's been spoken to you. And so then your life is sluggish. Your life is not pleasing to the Lord. So, see, the Christian life is, it's what we call uh, word-centric. The word, however we want to describe the word, is center to being a Christian. Now, we can look at that from the sense of the word of God, or we could look at it in the sense of the word made flesh in Christ Jesus. Well, they're both absolutely central to our lives. But if the Word, God gave us His Word in words, in written form. And it is His words that motivate, fuel a Christian life. The Word of God contains the knowledge of God. Who He is, what He's done, what He's doing, what He will do. The Word of God contains the promises of God. Well, what's the big deal? Well, Paul told the Colossians that he prays constantly for them for this one very reason. That they be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prayed constantly for the Colossians. And we also know for other people, for all Christians, if you just read through Paul's letters, he's praying that they know God, His will, and His wisdom, and His understanding. It's not something that just well-educated Christians ought to be chasing after. But all who call themselves Christians should be seeking to gain, to grow in their knowledge and understanding of all things God. Why is that so important? Because he tells the Colossians, that's the only way that you can live your life in a manner that's pleasing to God. That's the only way. He says, so as, or so that, or because, I want you to live a life, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. This is what you and I ought to be about. Living a life that is pleasing to God. Like if if you can't get on board with that, then me and you got to have a serious talk about your eternal soul. That is our calling as we looked at last week, godliness to be about God and his what he is about. This is what we ought to be about, living a life pleasing to God, worthy. If we're living a life pleasing to God, we're looking to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and worthy of His shed blood. The Scriptures are very clear that the way we do this is through growing in our knowledge of all things about God. Now, I, I have to put this side note in here because I've said a lot, an awful lot about knowledge and knowing. But here's what we have to understand. This must begin with faith. You understand me? It must begin with faith. When I say faith, 
What do I mean? I mean belief. The belief that you need Christ. You need Christ for forgiveness. You need Christ for righteousness. And as I'm writing this, and I didn't write this down, I'm thinking, oh wait, that's knowledge. What I just said you need to know is knowledge. You need to know that you need Christ. You need to know that you need forgiveness. You need to know that He is holy creator and He is just and righteous and you are condemned in your sin. So here's what I want you to understand. The beginning of Christianity, the beginning of your life, begins with, as we talked about in Sunday school, this word grace. Because guess what? No one knows No one understands. And I don't mean to belittle or to berate this point, but the point is is that to go from a sinner who does not know to a saint who knows, the only thing that's there, the only thing in the gap, is the giving of the knowledge from God. The grace of God. And so God gives the light. I used this illustration the other day, and I think it was in... What hymn is that? Charles Wesley hymn. That he's in a dungeon. He's in the darkness. And then, huh? And can it be? And and thine eye quickly shoots a ray. Right? That's not Wesley's. That's my interpretation. He shoots a ray of light in the dungeon. Lights up. That The enlightenment. To be an enlightened person means nothing. Apart from the lighting of of God in our lives to awaken us to the truth that we are sinners and we are in need of a Savior and the only Savior is Jesus Christ. And in that moment, in that giving of knowledge, that waking you up, that light coming in and and overcoming the darkness is the giving of faith. And that depending, that believing that what God has said is true. It begins with faith. And when I say faith, I mean trusting. Belief can be defined as faith. Trusting can be defined as faith. Trusting God for all things because you have nothing to offer. But, I can't remember who said this, you bring nothing to the table but your sin. That's it. What makes you a prime candidate to be saved? Not that you have figured it out. Not that you believe. Not that you had learned the right way and been enlightened. The only thing that makes you a prime candidate for salvation is your sin. You don't go to the doctor when you're healthy, right? You go to the doctor when you're sick. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the the sick. The wicked. I came to heal the brokenhearted. I I came to give life to the poor in spirit. It all begins with faith. Hebrews 11 says that without faith it's impossible to please God. The Christian life begins with faith, but it is and it continues by faith as we're going to see here. But it is continually fueled, filled, furnished 
by the knowledge of God from the word of God. So, if if someone calls you out as sluggish, hard of hearing, you're on the wrong path. You cannot fulfill that calling to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to live a life pleasing to Him, because you cannot be taught. You cannot know and understand. So then there's the second path. And he says, at the end of verse 12, So don't be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. People who have finished the race, they've completed the course, they've seen the fulfillment of their hope, the fulfillment of God's promise, They've seen it become a present reality. How did they get there? Through faith and patience. So, why does all this matter? Well, being a Christian is, and I'm sure we've heard the the cliche, and it comes from what I've already said. (coughs) Being a Christian is like running a marathon. Being a Christian is like running a marathon. Not physically. Thank the Lord. But living the life of Christian, uh, living the life as a follower of Christ, is a slow and steady race. Slow and steady race. And here's the problem. Here's the point of this passage. Here's the point of Hebrews. You want to know the point of Hebrews? Christian, the life of a, of a uh, Christian is a marathon. You got to run the whole race. That is a very simple way of understanding Hebrews. The Christian life is a marathon and you have to run all 26 point whatever miles. You have to complete it. And that's what he's wanting you to understand here. Now, (coughs) we can also think about Christianity and we'll come back to this as we hit it in later on in this in this verse of being not just running a race or on a path but being on a ship because if you're on a ship out at sea what do you usually have to deal with storms the waves of life and what are they trying to do what is the world the storms of life what do they want to do if you're on a ship if you're on if the christian life is being on a ship They want to knock you off. And not just knock you off, but to drown you to death. That's what the world is wanting to do. That's what Satan is trying to do. That's what your flesh wants to do. And to separate us from our hope. But as Christians, we hold fast. We hold fast to the promises of God. We hold fast to the anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ. Which is where we're going in this passage. And by that hope, guess what? You can be fearless when the storms come. You can be steadfast when you get to mile 25. You can continue on as we hold fast to our sure and steady anchor in Jesus Christ. But the sad reality is that some wander off the path. Or the, the, the preacher here wouldn't write this. Some wander off the path. Some get knocked off the boat. 
Now that can open up a whole other can of worms, but I, we won't get there. We're just going to stick to what we see here. The preacher of Hebrews is warning his audience, and he's warning you so that that's not going to happen to you. And I echo this concern and my love towards you. I don't want you to wander off the path. I don't want you to get knocked off the ship. I want you to finish the race. By the grace of God and the power of His Word, I want to encourage you to hold on to Christ. I want you to live in the hope of the promises that were bought by His blood for you. Sealed and given to the Father in heaven. So I guess that's really my introduction. Um, but we'll go, we'll go, we're halfway through. This is just a long introduction. So look at verse 12 again. I want us to see that again, the very, to me, the, the last few words in, in verse 12 say so much. Who inherits the promises of God? Who inherits the promises of God? It's those who live by faith and patience. Those who live by faith and patience. And so the writer then, he wants to help you understand this a little bit more. And he's like, let me just tell you about a story. Let me give you a story of the past. Because the scriptures of old are written for your good and your benefit. And so he says in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So, what's he talking about? Well, here we have to understand that before God made anything, God had a plan. Before anything was made, God had a plan. God had a purpose. What was His plan? His plan was to glorify Himself. Okay? His plan was to glorify... God didn't make the world and us so that He could feel our love for Him. Okay, that, That's not why we're created. We're not created to make God feel better because we choose to love Him. We're created so that we, as little image bearers or idols, would reflect His glory. Right? We, I think we talked about this maybe Sunday night. But as we talked about in Sunday school, we miserably failed at that. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But this did not take God by surprise. He did not create Adam and Eve, put them in a garden, tell them not to eat of this certain tree, and then sit back and be like, oh wait, they're walking to the tree. Oh, what is going on? What are they doing? I didn't plan this. This wasn't my purpose. God's plan, His purpose was to magnify the glory of Himself through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ and the grace of Him extending to sinners through the life, burial, resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ in order that He might have a people to Himself for eternity. All for His glory. So, what's the guy here talking about in Hebrews 12? He's talking about the plan really starts to get rolling about Genesis 12. 
God's plan really starts to get rolling about Genesis 12 when he when he chooses this pagan idol worshiper named Abram out of the middle of nowhere and says, I'm going to start this plan through you. And if he's going to do that with the ultimate purpose and end that there would be a babe named Jesus born in a manger through that man, Abram, in that lineage, that man's going to have to have a baby. You can't get great-grandkids without kids, right? So he says, what does he say? Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, we could get stuck and lost here for quite a few days. But here's just what I want to say. This is where the promise is starting to pick up. And look at verse 14. Uh, yeah, promise to air. We've already looked at verse 14. So how did Abraham receive the promise? That's what we need. Verse 15, excuse me. How did Abraham receive the promise or inherit the promise or have the fulfillment of the promise or obtained it? What does he do? And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. How did he obtain it? Through patience. Through patience. Now, of course, we. what else do you know that what else do we know about waiting patiently for a promise? If someone says, I promise tomorrow to give you $100 if you meet me at this place at this time. And you're like, okay, I'm waiting all night. And he's like, you got to go wait at this place all night. So you go and you wait. And you're showing patience on waiting. What else are you showing? Look back at verse 11, or excuse me, 12. Faith. Faith that the promise given will come to be. To live a patient life is to live a life in faith. You cannot separate the two. Patience is impossible without faith. Now, I was hoping to read a lot in, in, in Hebrews 11 about Abraham and his waiting and patience. Uh, let's just read just a couple verses out of it. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out into a place where he was to receive, or he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as it was a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, looking forward, waiting patiently, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jump down to uh, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now, perhaps a better way of saying patience to help me, but to help you understand it more biblically, is to have a steadfast endurance. To be steadfast and endurance. Sounds a lot like a marathon runner, right? Okay, so I got to move forward. I got to move forward on this. Two ways to live. Two paths. They're outlined. Now, the first way, the first way, let me just say this. And we can all affirm this with a hearty amen. Life is no picnic, right? Amen. Life is no picnic. It's hard. So you've got two options. Two options. First option. You can be sour, bitter, negative. You can complain. You can grumble. You can point the finger. Woe is me. Now, I could ramble off verse after verse of which to rebuke someone who took that attitudes towards life. But I just want us to quickly look at two verses, two passages, so that we could just all be certain that that's not the way to live. Now, and before I say this, it's obviously the opposite of how we ought to live, which is by faith. Now, how are we going to connect those two things? I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. We're not going to live sour or bitter or negative or complain or grumble, but we're going to live by faith. So let's just hang on to that for a second. And let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. So turn to the left. Go past Timothy. Make your way to Thessalonica. 2 Timothy or 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 No, nope, that's not right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Last no picnic, it's hard. And God says in verse 16, rejoice always. He says, pray without ceasing. Life's no picnic. It's hard. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, how can how, how's faith play into this? How does faith play into life's no picnic? Rejoice always. Life is hard. Give thanks in all circumstances. Where does faith come into that? God's promise. Look what he says. He says, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not an option. Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, we won't turn to the second passage. It's Philippians 2, which is very clear. Do not, don't grumble. Don't dispute. 
but instead be a light to the, the, this crooked, twisted generation. But I want to jump to the second way of living in a, a life of uh, struggle, a life of uh, suffering. And that's the life of faith. What does that mean? It means believing that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is firm, is sovereign, firmly in control of all things. And that the words that He has spoken is as sure as gold and as sweet as honey. Now you're like, come on, get to the point here, Luke. What God has said to you, Christian, those who have called you by name, those who love God, He has said, all things work together for good. Now you're thinking about your life and your situation. You're thinking about your struggle. And I want you to tell me if you truly believe that God is working all things out for good. That is a life of faith. It's not easy. Not just some things, but all things. The good times, the bad times, the times of plenty, the times of want. The times of laughter, the times of pain, the times of gain, the times of loss. All things work together for good. And because of that, because we believe that, we can give thanks to God in all circumstances. You see, and it's not just that God turns bad things into good for Christians. Here's where, here's where, I, here's where faith is... Very much needed. You hearing me? It's not that God takes the bad things and turns them into good for you. It's that God meant the bad things for good for you. Are you catching what I'm saying? That God isn't surprised by your bad situation and circumstance. And he's like, I really need to fix this for my son or daughter in Christ for my child. No. He is in control of all things. He is the author of all things. He gave you a bad day for your good. You lost that loved one for your good. That's the word of God. That's the promise of God. That you can trust that the crazy things in life, while they hurt and they cause pain, that in Christ you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, do you believe that? Remember, remember Joseph 
Joseph, he thought he was something. And his brothers didn't think that, did they? They wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit. The grace of God came to Joseph when Judah said, no, let's just throw him in a pit and sell him to, uh, to somebody. Not Judah. What was his name? The older brother. Reuben, yeah. And you would think, man, getting thrown in a pit, getting sold into slavery, and then getting accused of doing something you didn't do, getting thrown into, into prison. Life is not fair. God help me. And in all the end, Joseph gets removed from prison, becomes the second in command in Egypt, saves his very own brothers from famine in order that the line that started with Abraham, continued through Judah, would bring about the Messiah... Joseph was there to keep it going. And his brothers found out who he was, where he was. They knew what they had done, and their father had died, so they were felt unprotected, didn't know if Joseph, the second in command in Egypt, was going to kill him. So they go and they say, please forgive us. And Joseph just, I just assume he just kind of grinned and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant it for good. God didn't use it. He planned it. That's because he is in control of all things. And so when we're in the pit, like Joseph, or we're being accused of wrong, doing wrong when we didn't, when we're suffering for the sake of Christ, remember that he's doing it for your good. Back at Romans 15, I'm, excuse, I'm sorry, Romans 5. Oh. So verse 2, we see through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only do we hope in the verse, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Oh, we need that, right? We need that steadfast endurance to finish the race. And that endurance produces character. And we, we need that because we're trying to become like Christ. We're trying to be the image bearer that we have been called to be. And character produces hope. A confident expectation of a sure outcome. The hope that does not put us to shame. Why? Because of the anchor. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings because God is working. God is in control. Now, I just have to, i got to finish this quickly. And so back to Hebrews 6. Here's what I want you to understand. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation, so that when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
So I want you to understand, if you believe in Christ, if you are someone who has faith in Jesus, that term heir of the promise includes you. Okay? So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes that before us. Here's what I just want you to understand. When God made His promise to Abraham and He made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant is an agreement between two people. And I'm just going to tell you this. We're not going to read it. Back in the day of Abraham's day, when two people came together and made a covenant, they did something. They did something kind of weird. They took certain animals and they cut them in half. Okay? And they made like a, a runway. They put the top half of the animal over here, the bottom half, this animal over here. And what they would do, what was custom, is they would stand together and they would walk through that walkway, passing through these cut animals. And you know what the symbol of those cut animals were? It was an oath. It was a promise that says, if I fail to fulfill my covenant to you, may this very thing happen to me that has happened to these animals. Abraham cut up these animals, laid them out. You know what God did? God knocked him out, put him to sleep. And that night, Abraham woke up and he saw a torch and a smoking pot walking through those cut pieces of animal. And God said, I will keep my promise. You have my word. He promised to Abraham, but he also promised to the heirs of Abraham. You and I who are in Christ. That his character, his purpose, his plan will not change. And that he cannot lie and he will fulfill his promise. But you know what's ironic? He kept his promise... But his son was cut. Abraham and all the heirs of Abraham couldn't keep the promise, couldn't keep the covenant. They deserved to be cut up like those animals. But God sent his son and he was cut so that those who could not keep the covenant could have the promises fulfilled to them. Look at verse 19. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I just want you to understand that we're talking about the presence of God where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of 
Melchizedek. I just want to point out that that ought to give you strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before you because Christ has been before you. He has gone in your place before you to the presence of God and stands there on your behalf. And as we finish Hebrews, this is what the preacher is wanting to explain to us. The details of what has happened. In chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Now, I just want to finish with an illustration and a hymn. Imagine you're on a ship in a bad storm. And you look to the captain and you ask the captain, What do we do? We're going to die. And the captain calmly says, We must drop the anchor and that will keep us from being destroyed. And you look up at the captain and goes, But what should I do? And he looks back at you calmly and he says, Trust the anchor. Hold on tight and wait. And you will live. The anchor is set. And it's firmly planted in the Holy of Holies. The very presence of God. And if you are in Christ, you are connected to the anchor. And it is sure. And it is steadfast. And you must trust the anchor. Hold tight. And wait. We're going to sing a song tonight. We're going to learn a song called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. And it goes, a verse goes like this. Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle, and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Grasp on to the anchor that is Christ. The sure and steadfast anchor of our soul and find life that is immovable, that is eternal. Trust. Believe. Hold tight to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, keep us. Give us the strength to hold on. Give us the faith to trust that the anchor will keep us steady. Give us a heart that needs Christ. For everything and for all things. Remind us that we are a people who need Christ. Be merciful to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.